We asked for your questions about objectivist philosophy, and you submitted them. Answering your questions on philosophy is something that we're making a regular feature of this podcast. Today is our fifth installment in this series. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Sam Weaver, Junior Fellow at ARI, and with me today are Ben Baer, Fellow and Instructor at ARI, and joining us for the first time, Tristan de Liege, Junior Fellow at ARI. Welcome, Ben and Tristan. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Adam. And I wanted to welcome uh, Tristan as well. Tristan uh, is, as Sam mentioned, one of our junior fellows. He's, that means, among other things, he's one of our teaching assistants in the Objectivist Academic Center. He's also a newly minted PhD in philosophy, recently defended his dissertation at the University of California, Riverside. So welcome, Tristan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right. Great, it's great to have you here, Tristan. Uh, so today, I have a few questions about a variety of different topics to ask you. So let's dive right in. Our first question is, is atheism a necessary part of the philosophy of objectivism? Okay, so in thinking about this question, um, one of the things, first of all, we wanna start with is thinking about what do we mean by atheism? Uh, so sometimes, um, people take atheism to be uh, the positive belief that there is no God. Um, we can also think of it at more negatively, and I think this is the right way to think of it, is it's simply a lack of belief um, in a supernatural deity. Uh, the, the reason that it matters to characterize it that way. And the reason that you don't, from objectivism's perspective, you don't wanna think of atheism as um, a belief system is that there's not, um, there's not a cognitive status that um, the belief in God has that merits thinking of the non-belief in God as some kind of um, important philosophical truth. Um, obviously, the rejection of uh, religion does have significant implications, but the the way of understanding it as, well, it's just a non-belief in God, um, I think highlights the fact that atheism doesn't, it doesn't have an affinity, so to speak, with other um, atheists. There's no um, sort of general worldview that uh, atheists share by virtue of being atheists. Um, other than the fact that they're not religious. And I think that's a really important uh, point to make because it, we don't exactly wanna think of atheism as, well, it's a core philosophical element of objectivism. It's more so that religion is not a part of the philosophies of, of objectivism. So any religion um, that, uh, you know, contains a belief in a supernatural deity um, cannot be part of objectivism. So that's just the first thing to clarify. Um, why, why does objectivism reject um, a belief in God? Well, one of the things that um, we wanna think about is on what grounds can we begin to entertain um, beliefs or engage in cognition about them from objectivism's perspective? In other words, at what 
point can you begin um, considering claims uh, seriously and, uh, and then believing them? Well, from objectivism's perspective, all of our knowledge uh, starts with uh, the evidence of perception. It begins with what we're able to observe and then building up from that, what we're able to um, think about conceptually based on the information that. And from objectivism's perspective, there's no uh, faculty or ability to gain knowledge other than what we can perceive and then what we can integrate from what we can perceive, which is reason. Uh, and that's what it means to say that in matters of knowledge, really in matter in all matters, but in matters of knowledge, uh, reason is absolute. Uh, there's no alternative to reason. There's nothing superior than reason. So that means there's no uh, validity to faith. Um, and uh, that means that there can be no if there's no evidence for the existence of God, then from the objectivism's perspective, reason will not condone a belief in God. Um, so that, that kind of segues into, well, what about the arguments for the existence of God? Because historically people have presented arguments. Uh, for example, there's the cosmological argument, which says uh, the universe must have a beginning. And that beginning must be something that exists outside of the universe or outside of nature. Or uh, the idea that uh, the universe is too orderly and uh, too beautiful or too um, finely detailed to not have been created by a God. So that's the argument from design. Or the ontological argument um, that says that uh, based on the nature of what it means uh, to be perfect, that there must exist um, a God that has the qualities of perfection and existence. Objectivism's perspective is that all of none of those arguments actually provide evidence for God, because none of them actually connect to our perceptual evidence in the way that I just stated. There's, of course, a lot more we can say about them. And I, there are other things you can say about why those arguments are flawed. Um, but I'll just, I'll just focus on one. Um, and then I'll talk about um, one particular concept in general that's important for understanding the context of evaluating religious um, claims. So the particular... Uh, challenge that objectivism presents for any of the arguments for the existence of God is that um, they violate basic uh, philosophical uh, starting points, which from objectivism's perspective are uh, considered axioms, or that's how Ayn Rand characterized them. And uh, the axioms are uh, conceptual integrations that are foundational um, to all of our cognition. They're foundational to all of our knowledge and uh, they're implied in any knowledge claim that we make. So 
In particular, the one I want to focus on is the idea that um, things have an identity. So uh, things have a nature, things are what they are. Um, and this is familiar if anyone has who's um, listening to this has studied philosophy, this is familiar as um, sometimes it's put as um, the law of non-contradiction, which is just an inverse version of um, the law of identity or the axiom of identity. And the axiom of identity rules out that things can act um, against their nature, that there can be such a thing as a miracle, for example, or that there can be something that's supernatural, which, which is just to say uh, it doesn't have a definite nature. Um, it doesn't have a defined or a delimited nature, um, or it's non-finite. All of those kind of characterizations, which are um, in the arguments for God, always key elements of uh, how God is characterized, um, violate the axiom of identity. And so from that's just one, one perspective from which we can see that there's a really foundational problem from a Ayn Rand's perspective of the arguments for the existence of God. Uh, the other important element here, maybe uh, Ben, you can elaborate on this too, is uh, the concept of the arbitrary. So what, what do we mean by arbitrary within objectivism? Well, the arbitrary uh, our claim that's a characterization of claims that do not have any connection to perceptual evidence. Um, so they're claims that are made outside of a context of trying to relate them or reduce them uh, to perceptual evidence. What would be an example of this? Well, if I start talking about angels and I just tell you, well, look, God, uh, you know, he has some entities that are, uh, have immortal souls and they help him control the kingdom of heaven and they sometimes communicate to human beings. And if you ask me, oh, well, like, where are those entities that you're talking about? And the answer from the, you know, from the perspective of, for example, Christianity is, well, there's no there's no evidence that you can point to, or there's no real evidence that you can point to of, oh, well, that's the entity that I'm talking about. Like those things that you can see there, those things that um, we can infer their existence um, from certain things happening. Uh, and so it, it's not really valid, the concept of an angel is, it's not really a concept. It's not a valid arbitrary in the sense that it's not trying to actually integrate anything that we can see or interact with in the world. Uh, and as a result, from objectivism's perspective, the arb uh, arbitrary concepts are not real cognition or they're not uh, instances of successful cognition since what cognition is, is, um, as I said, interacting with what we can perceptually um, see, hear, touch, etc., and then the integration of that information. That's the only, because of hum human nature being the way it is, that's how we acquire knowledge. That's how we're conscious of the world. 
and so objectivism has the view that all of the arbitrary has to be rejected, all arbitrary claims and all arbitrary concepts. And uh, religion tends to be full of arbitrary concepts, such as angels and the idea of an immaterial soul, all uh, things that cannot be reduced um, to perception and indeed God. So that that's another perspective on why objectivism is necessarily atheistic. Yeah, Tristan, one perspective you might add to that last point about uh, the arbitrariness of the belief in God as, as one of the core reasons that objectivism rejects it is the, the very concept of God itself, uh, if you want to even call it a concept. And there's a question of how, what is God even supposed to be? How are you even supposed to define this concept? And it's, it's revealing and important that when you push someone to try to define the concept, the most they can ever really do is to give a series of things God is not supposed to be. So infinite means he's not finite. Um, omnipotent means he has all power, but that means no particular powers as opposed to others. Uh, and the list goes on with the all the other characteristics that are usually assigned to him. He's supposed to be a being of no particular identity who's not found in any particular place in the universe. He's supposed to be not of this universe, not of the natural world. So this list of uh, negative properties in effect is, that's another sign that you're dealing with something that has no identity and, and that the cognitive claim, that, that there's no cognitive content to that claim. And that's part of why you stressed at the beginning, Tristan, that it's, it's important to think of atheism as the absence of a belief about this kind of thing, not the assertion that it doesn't exist. It's not like the claim, there's no elephant in this room where you know what elephants are and you're saying you've looked everywhere and you just can't find them. Uh, it's a very different kind of issue. And um, can, can I add something to that, Ben? Sure. Uh, I, I think, so I took a philosophy of uh, religion class um, in my undergraduate at, um, uh, at UC Davis. And one of the things you notice, and I've noticed this in other contexts too, is that when you engage with the arbitrary, you it can just go on forever. Because, and that's part of the importance of identifying that they're arbitrary because, um, and this kind of goes with what you just said about what exactly is the claim being made by atheism. If we're getting into an argument about, well, does God exist or not? And we're saying, well, okay, let's assume that's a valid concept. Like, let's, where do we go from here? You can't win that argument because the defender of God can just keep coming up with more arbitrary claims. And you've already licensed the introduction of the arbitrary by saying, well, let's just assume that God does exist. And so, for example, to concretize this point a bit more, um, you can just get into endless debates about um, the problem of evil and how you can respond to the problem of evil, how God might have plans that involve sometimes allowing evil and things like that. Um, and it's all nonsense. It's not, none of that is actual um, cognition or engagement with the world that we perceive that we're living in. Uh, and it's just a back and forth of uh, using words and uh, well, word games essentially. Illustrates the problem of the arbitrary. Yes, and that, that relates to something I wanted to say about the arguments for God's existence. Now, 
you know, we've we've just made the statement that these arguments don't work, that they have logical flaws, that they contradict basic axioms, et cetera. Um, and don't take our word for this. Go check these arguments out yourself. Take a look and see if you think they make sense. We could, you know, answer more questions about that later on another episode. Uh, but it's it's worth also, I think, pointing out that just if you look at the role these arguments play in people's thinking, it's it's they serve a certain arbitrary role in most cases. Like I've never met anyone who believes in God who started believing in God simply because they saw one of these arguments for the first time. They used to be an atheist and then they went to went on to being a theist because they were convinced by the argument. I mean, there might be a few such people, but I, I've never met one. And it's certainly not true, uh, or rather that that is certainly true of the historical philosophers who originated these arguments. Uh, Aquinas didn't start out as an atheist and then because he gave his five ways version of the cosmological argument, therefore he was converted to Catholicism. It was rather he starts out as a Catholic and then gives these arguments as a form of apologetics to the skeptics that maybe are in his audience. Uh, and you know, even he says that that God's existence is is a is a can be a matter of faith, but you can also give an argument for it. I think for most people, these arguments serve as sorts of uh, rationalizations. They've got this belief; they're looking for a way to justify it, and so they marshal this argument uh, as a kind of excuse for why they believe this thing, which is in fact just a matter of faith. And the fact that the arguments then evolve in the way that they do, when someone points out a, a hole in the argument, they try to patch it. Uh, by maybe redefining what God is supposed to be or redefining what uh, uh, causality is supposed to be or what have you, um, it shows, I think, that they are thinking of them in an arbitrary way. Uh, you know, I think conceivably, plausibly, there are certain premises in the arguments that if you add that, if, if you have a completely different mindset uh, and if you are not trying to approach them as rationalizations for something, but uh, simply in a first-handed way, there might be certain things that these premises prove, but it's not that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing yeah. God. Like at best, the cosmological argument, for example, I think shows there can't be an infinite regress of explanations that any kind of uh, scientific explanation has to start with something, but why that something needs to be a super conscious being who created the universe uh, is, is something that simply doesn't follow who chose a particular group of um, people in Israel as his, as his chosen people. And, but in, yeah. in, you know, there's another, um, like, I don't know if this was in what you said, but um, just one more point on this that I think is worth saying is that the way it functions, the arguments function, for example, Christians in history have been actually quite explicit about this, even that the arguments aren't the reason that they believe in God. They're just tools for converting people and also defending That's, themselves against the possibility of losing their beliefs. That is one thing that Aquinas, I think, explicitly says. Um, yeah. I also wanted to say something just about the, this question in relation to the philosophy of objectivism as such, because what, what the person was asking about was whether this perspective, whether an atheist perspective is a necessary part of the philosophy of objectivism. I think you're right, Tristan, uh, atheism itself isn't really a positive doctrine, it's, it's, a, it's a negative one. Uh, but 
I do think it is true and important that, that necessarily God is no part of the objectivist philosophy. And you can illustrate that by, by looking at some of the other major principles of objectivist philosophy and thinking about how, if you were to suddenly start believing in a God, you would have to systematically revise your philosophic worldview. Um, objectivism, for example, and its, its theory of uh, the nature of reality says that there's, an ex there's, a, there's a reality that's independent of our consciousness, that it's out there whether anybody likes it or not. Well, God is supposed to be a consciousness who creates reality out of nothing. Uh, and that is the opposite perspective. That's the primacy of consciousness view, not the primacy of existence view, like what objectivism maintains. Objectivism also says human beings have free will. But how do you reconcile free will with the omniscient, all-powerful being who knows the whole future of the universe and knows every choice you're going to make? Uh, and it, it, I mean, theologians have struggled to try to reconcile those views, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard to do. Or just objectivism's take on individualism and egoism, the idea that our life is our own, that it's our life to plan as we see fit to pursue our own happiness. That's not the theistic perspective. If you think there's a God who created each of us, uh, our life belongs to him and his purposes define our purposes. So you can't maintain individualism. And for that reason, you can't really maintain capitalism. There, are, there certainly are religious conservatives over the years who've tried to do it, but they usually end up finding that because of the religious moral views they've adopted, they, they can't really be defenders of, of, the, of the virtue of selfishness that goes into the idea of laissez-faire capitalism. Yeah. Um, I should mention Which since we should all of on, that. Oh yeah, just one more quick thing. I think all of that is also a really interesting illustration of uh, the hierarchy of um, the branches of philosophy in the sense that by introducing um, a falsehood so deep in the metaphysics of reality, you really destroy everything. You destroy epistemology and ethics and, and politics. And if you'd like to find out more about this view of objectivisms, uh, I'd recommend two places to look as, as resources. Uh, one is just, especially if you're new to this idea, uh, check out the entry in the Ayn Rand lexicon on the topic of God and religion. Um, that uh, if you can, you can go straight to each of those entries by visiting bit.ly slash capital AR hyphen God and bit.ly slash capital AR hyphen religion. Uh, those, those include some samples from Ayn Rand's writings uh, on just these topics, uh, illustrating some of the points that I've just been discussing. But if you want a, a presentation of how the objectivist view on God and religion is really systematically interconnected with its other principles in the way I was just mentioning, a really excellent place to look is Dr. Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. And here in particular, uh, I'd recommend chapter one, uh, which is on the topic of objectivism's metaphysics, its theory of the nature of reality, and how that theory is incompatible with the very idea of a god. Well, speaking of the branches of philosophy, which Tristan brought up a moment ago, we have a question here about epistemology. And this question asks, 
How can we guard against parroting others when we rely on their expertise? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll start uh, with a few thoughts on this question. The reason that this is a question that often comes up, I think, especially for people who are interested in Ayn Rand's philosophy is, uh, as, as Tristan was just uh, commenting on in connection with the other question, objectivism maintains that reason is an absolute, that it's our only way of knowing something about the world. And it says this from an individualistic perspective. So it's you and your own reason trying to figure out what's true about the world. So it advocates for intellectual independence. And there's a question that comes up, and I think it's a fair question, of if we're supposed to be independent, if we're supposed to do our thinking for ourselves, doesn't this mean that we shouldn't rely on other people? And there is, I think, a sense in which that's true. But you have to be very careful about what sense that is, because there's another sense in which it's not true. And it's obvious that it's not true. Um, there is a big difference between being an intellectual dependent who takes things on faith, uh, who believes certain religious beliefs on faith, like the ones we were just dis discussing. There's a big difference between that on the one hand, and then on the other, somebody who learns from other people, especially somebody who learns from experts. And just to, as a gesture uh, to, to indicate that, that this is a real and important difference, uh, and that it's one that Ayn Rand understood and recognized, I want to point people to what is a, a real primary text here, which is Rourke's courtroom speech, where Rourke is otherwise talking all about the importance of independent thinking and individualism. But check out this particular passage. He says, we inherit the products of thought of the thought of other men. The moving force is the creative faculty which takes this product as material, uses it and originates the next step. Men learn from one another, but all learning is only the exchange of material. No man can give another the capacity to think, yet that capacity is our only means of survival. So if you think why Rourke, for example, is saying this, I mean, he is the paradigm of the individualist who's independent, but he's also not Athena born fully grown from the skull of Zeus. He had to learn a lot from other people on his way up. Uh, most prominently in the story is he learns architecture from Henry Cameron, who's an expert. He goes to Cameron to learn how to build buildings. Uh, he also went to a regular college. He went to Stanton to learn uh, engineering. So Rourke needs the knowledge that the other people have acquired. He can't reinvent the wheel for himself. If he tried to, it would take thousands and thousands of years. We live in a division of labor society and that includes the labor that's involved in our knowledge. Um, there is such a thing as taking people on faith and there's a, there's a logical fallacy called the, people often call the appeal to authority. Uh, but that's actually not the most precise way of stating what the fallacy is. A better way of stating it would be the appeal to irrelevant authority. If you, if you take Dr. Peikoff's logic course, his uh, course Introduction to Logic, which is available on uh, Ayn Rand campus, I think we have a, a, a card we can put up about that. Uh, check out his lecture on the informal fallacies, which I think is uh, lecture two. 
He is very careful to distinguish between what he calls appeal to irrelevant authority, which is the fallacy, which is taking other people on faith. And on the other hand, appealing to relevant authority, where you have good reason of your own to recognize that somebody else knows what they're talking about and that they know more than you do. And that because you can't reinvent the wheel and do all the research on your own, uh, you need to listen to other people who know more. And there are tools that we have at our disposal to recognize when someone knows what they're talking about and when they know more than we do, and we need to do it. And so it's not a fallacy, for example, um, to go to a doctor who uh, has studied medicine and you know that they've studied medicine and you know that they uh, treat patients and that they know more about it than you do. It's not a fallacy to learn something from them and to take their advice. Um, I mean, the, the principle here is that knowledge is something that we're not just born with. It's not something that comes to us automatically. It's something that we have to do work to acquire. And that's true of each and every one of us. It's also true that some knowledge takes more work than other kinds of knowledge. Some knowledge takes very specialized work and, not, and we can't specialize in everything. We have to trade with people who, who have different specializations than we do. And so you need to have expertise to know certain kinds of topics. I mean, just a really simple example here is none of us can see the coronavirus. It is an invisible entity. Uh, to the naked eye. We need someone who can build a microscope, who knows how to build a microscope, and who can know how to interpret what he sees and do all kinds of other medical tests in order to identify that the virus even exists, what its causes are, what its effects are, what, it's, uh, what the treatment of it is going to be, what's going to inoculate, it, uh, inoculate us against it. These are specialized kinds of knowledge that people need to engage in specialized study to acquire. And if we haven't done that specialized study, we're not gonna know what we're talking about. But uh, we sure can figure out if someone else knows what they're talking about. And this goes back to some of the things that Tristan was mentioning earlier. And the reason, for example, that objectivism rejects the existence of God is because there's no evidence for it. Uh, you need to have evidence to accept something rationally. Well, there is evidence based on perception that you can acquire about whether someone knows what they're talking about, whether they have the specialized expertise. I mean, just a really simple example, if you're working with the doctor example, you can find out, uh, do they have credentials from an institution where they went to learn medicine? I don't think that's all that you need. You also need to know, like, are they, do they take patients on a regular basis? Do they have a track record? Do the people who go to them end up dying or do they come back better? These are things you can find out. Uh, and if you can't find them out directly on your own, you can find them out by other people who've done surveys and who've done studies of these kinds of things, who themselves have the necessary expertise to do that. Uh, you need to find out if the person has the relevant area of expertise, like not every doctor is a specialist on the kind of disease that you're trying uh, to understand. Someone who's a cardiologist knows a lot about the heart. It doesn't make them an epidemiologist who knows a lot about, for example, infectious disease. Does the doctor who's talking to you know how to explain something to a layman? Can, can he put what he knows in terms that you can understand such that you have confidence that he has respect for your intelligence? And he can point to the evidence from the tests that he's acquired and explain its significance to you in, in you know, ways that are analogous to things that you do understand. Do you have any reason to think that he's biased or dishonest? Uh, and what do other doctors say? 
what if you go and you get a second opinion? Does the second doctor say the same thing the first one does, or does he substantially disagree? And he offers really compelling reasons why the first doctor um, might not know what he's talking about. So there's all kinds of questions that we can ask about the expert testimony that we get from other people. There's standards that derive from our own uh, knowledge, from the observations that we can make about the world and about what experts know and what they do and what results of what they do are that can give us reasonable confidence in the things that they tell us, even if they're not things that we can verify firsthand for ourselves. And I said reasonable confidence. It's important that even though you can know that someone else knows what they're talking about, it's very rare, especially when you're dealing with a specialized subject that involves lots of complexities, it's rare that that's going to give you certainty that they're right. I think it will often give you a high degree of confidence, a high degree of probability. Uh, and that's important. Um, I'll stop there. Tristan, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you covered a lot. Um, one, one thing that I would add to, um, in, just in terms of phrasing, I, I don't think this adds that much substantive content to what you're saying, but one thing I would add too, in terms of how we're thinking about this is that if we're taking the question literally, like what, um, what's the difference between a parrot repeating the claims of experts and a, you know, a rational human um, taking expert uh, claims into his own context or her own context is you're constantly integrating it with information that you know. Um, that includes a lot of things that you you said, Ben, such as um, evidence of bias or dishonesty, uh, the track record, um, peers in that person's field, the context of the field uh, of that in which they're working, um, and then also things that you know, like things that you you do already know, and you do have um, cognitive access to, like things you can perceive, or things that you're an expert in. Uh, so I think that's the other, another way to put a lot of the things that you said is the person who is not being a parent and who's being rationally independent um, is acknowledging the division of labor and the importance of that. And then also uh, integrating and claims what he knows. And then the other and I think you mentioned uh, this already, Ben, but the other thing that's important to remember is that uh, we don't need certainty for everything. We, we don't need to be certain about every scientific claim if we're not experts in those fields. And that's a, I think that's a consequence of a division of labor society. That's good, actually, because um, there's simply no time. I mean, that's the whole idea of a division of labor society in terms of knowledge. Um, is that there's no time to develop um, specialized fields um, if everyone has to be up to date on all of the most relevant knowledge. So it necessitates that people are not gonna be uh, certain and not gonna have uh, real knowledge about a lot of things. And um, that's a good thing. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes this kind of question can come and I, you know, it depends on the why someone would ask this question, but I think sometimes um, it can come from a place of 
worrying that, well, if I'm going to be rational, don't I have to like be certain about everything that I'm interacting with or every, you know, every action I'm taking or every um, thing that I accept as a, as a belief? Well, no, you don't. I mean, there are a lot of things that we only have probabilistic knowledge of um, and or the, even just possible knowledge of. And there are many, many cases throughout life where uh, knowing that something is probably true is sufficient or even just possibly true is actually quite sufficient for acting on it, um, including many scientific things. So, uh, you know, it, you can interpret this different ways, but for example, even if we don't think, which I think might be the right way to think about it, that even if we don't think um, a doctor's prescription counts as knowledge of this is the right course of action that I should take for my medical health, in let's say a complicated case um, uh, like cancer or something, well, you don't necessarily need to be certain that that's the right course of action, even with something as drastic as your life, because you can base your judgment on, well, I'm certain that this person's not dishonest. Um, it's very unlikely that they're not credentialed um, or, or maybe you're only probably certain that they're not dishonest. But um, even if that's what you have to go with, that's going to be sufficient. And that I think accepting that is uh, sort of accepting the responsibility of independence as well from another perspective that um, we have a limited context and there is a division of labor and we aren't going to be certain about everything. And the reason I say that it's a, a sort of accepting of responsibility is that the alternative is uh, dogmatism or a blind following of authority where we have a sense that, well, we need certainty. So that means um, I have to just agree with what this person says. And that's going to count. Yeah, it, you know, I'm going to accept that as certainty. On this topic, I think your point about how there are people who, who have this question because they maybe they think they need to be certain about everything. I think that's true that some people have that reason. I think that's the the more benign reason that they have uh, for this kind of worry. There are somewhat malignant reasons that they have as well. Um, there are people, I believe, who they have a chip on their shoulder and they they like to act out and they don't they don't like to be told what to do in the sense of being corrected because they're making mistakes. And they, as a result, like to think of themselves as the great independent individualist who isn't going to be told by anybody what's true. Uh, but that is, that, is a, that is not such an honest mistake, I think. That's somebody who's trying to rationalize the fact that they are being dishonest with themselves and then trying to claim the mantle of uh, heroic individualist as a result. And uh, I think more often than not these days, in, uh, especially in connection with various controversies about the coronavirus, that is more often the motivation that leads people to reject what experts are telling them. And that doesn't mean that experts are always right. I think they get a lot wrong, uh, especially on you know, topics where 
it takes some work to distinguish between the science and the philosophy of say a public policy question. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't something that they very often know what they're talking about. And we did a podcast on this uh, some time ago uh, on this series uh, called The Assault on Expertise, which people can look up. Um, before we go to the next question though, we should maybe also recommend one other resource, a course that uh, Greg Salmieri and I have up on Ayn Rand campus called uh, Objective Thinking. And I have a course there on being objective about the news. Uh, Greg has one on being an objective consumer of science, which I think has influenced uh, both Tristan and I in the way that we think about uh, how to process the claims that we hear about uh, what's true about the world, especially when it's coming from experts. Uh, and there's a lot of value, I think, in that course. Yeah, and so, just to add one thing, um, Ben, that is also mentioned in that course um, on being an objective consumer of science. And I think one thing we didn't touch on that does complicate this uh, is this fact that intellectual, we have to, I mean, we did mention this, you have to have some sense of evaluating the field itself that the expert is working in. And part of what can complicate that, especially in today's society, um, is the presence of force. In other words, for the presence of government interference or government coercion um, can erode the integrity of an intellectual field and that complicates um, our ability to make judgments about the experts within that field. Just as a, a really brief um, ex like potential example of this, um, we can think about uh, the way in which, and many libertarians um, and uh, classical liberals have written about this, we can think about the way in which uh, the judgments of FDA experts are going to be guided by many things that are not related to their actual uh, rational judgments of the efficacy and safety of drugs, um, because they're going to be motivated by uh, things like not uh, minimizing risk beyond um, what's rationally necessary. And they're not going to face consequences for uh, making judgments that are uh, overly risk averse, among other things. Um, and that's not even to say, you know, there are all sorts of other kinds of incentives that um, government bureaucrats can have that don't have anything to do with truth. So even if we think that they um, are trying to be honest, the very nature of their job makes it more difficult to assess them as experts. Um, but again, yeah, that's discussed uh, more in Greg's course as well. So, but I just wanted to add that because I think it's, uh, in today's context, it's also relevant to think about. Let's turn to a question on a different subject now. The question is, why does objectivism emphasize the spiritual aspect of sex as opposed to its biological function? Okay, so um, I'll start this one. So uh, there are several different issues that come up with this question. This is, I think there are a lot of things going on in a question like this. 
Um, in terms of how the question is worded itself, I would start by thinking about why are we thinking of it as um, the spiritual versus the biological function? So what's thinking about what's the premise behind that, that there's a kind of division between our biological capacities and the values that we consciously choose or that um, are very important to us. Um, because one of the initial uh, things to think about with this question is that objectivism does not reject, does not accept such a division. Um, so let's kind of um, step back and think about what does it even mean to say that um, those are in effect and what are, uh, what are biological functions and how, how are those related from objectivism's perspective? Well, objectivism's perspective is that um, our ethics, our guide to uh, choosing values and conceiving of values is based on an understanding of um, human beings and human nature, which includes our biological nature. So in, in the sense that what we're doing when we're thinking about how do people need to live and what, uh, what is a correct or proper standard by which humans should choose actions and evaluate themselves and others uh, including ethical values and spiritual values. It's based on considerations about what kind of um, organism are human beings. And in particular, what matters here and what matters for ethics is the fact that, uh, as we said before, that part of what human nature is, is that we uh, need to have knowledge and to be able to understand the world and navigate through it we need to engage our faculty of reason. We need to engage our ability to uh, conceptualize long range, um, to integrate the material uh, of perceptual reality so that we can deal with it on the basis of understanding the natures of things that we inter interact with. And that enables us to uh, think long range and have values that are long range and purposes that are long range which sets the context for what ethics is about, which is living a great life, like realizing your potential uh, as a rational organism. And uh, well, so what's the biological function? Well, reason is a biological capacity then from objectivism's perspective. And that's the perspective from which we start to understand ethics is that we have this biological capacity that we need to engage um, that also works volitionally, that is by choice. Um, so I'll get to that more in a moment, but there's the reason that we have spiritual values, which I mean, I think from objectivism perspective, we would understand as um, values pertaining primarily to consciousness rather than values that are automatic and um, you, you could say pursued automatically by our body, such as digestion um, or blood circulation. Like the reason we have spiritual values and the reason we need them is based on the fact that we have this biological capacity um, that needs to be engaged. And there's a lot more to say about, well, why do we need um, 
spiritual values to live. And that, that is in, in effect the answer or the question that gives rise to the objectivist ethics. Like the objectivist ethics is the answer to that question of, well, the, this is why we need spiritual values and these are the values we need, um, all of the virtues and so on, and uh, reason and purpose, self-esteem. So th there's a lot to say about that that is too much to cover here. But um, let's, so we have that background context now. So we, this is why there are spiritual values. Well, why does objectivism emphasize the spiritual value of sex then? Um, part of what it means to be rational and to be a rational valuer and to do so really well or excellently from objectivism's perspective is to uh, take a very serious look at the values one pursues in reality. And in particular, the ones that uh, make a great deal of difference for our ability to engage with the world and our ability to live and act by reason. So I'll give one more other example besides turning to sex, which is uh, creative work or productive work. Why does objectivism, you know, if you look at the novels like uh, The Fountainhead and Alice Shrugged, why is it there's such a huge emphasis on the spiritual nature of productive work, the way in which Rourke is so engaged, um, so obsessively pursuing his standards in architecture, um, the way Reardon and Dagny are so driven in their respective fields um, for excellence and innovation, and the way in which they uh, dwell in the pleasure of their achievement. Well, it's because that's the um, conceptual part of the equation of what it is to be a human being, that we don't, um, productive work isn't, to, to rationally approach it, it's not something that you just do automatically or that you just conform to or accept the standards of others or that you don't give very much thought to it. If you're being rational about it and you're fully engaging your human nature, which is your ability, uh, as we said, to conceptualize it um, and to choose it for yourself. Part of what it means is being really selective and being really thoughtful. Um, choosing means not choosing other things. And so when you're choosing your work, you're not choosing other lines of work and you have a limited time on earth to develop certain capacities and to pursue a certain kind of career. And that gives rise to the spiritual importance of it because you're now, you know, emotionally invested um, into the, the uh, project of that work and the consequent reward of it, which is uh, your self-esteem. And the same, now going to sex finally, the same is, is true of sex that it, it's a huge, uh, you could say, uh, value potential because it's the most um, intimate act that we can share with another human being. There's no, um, in terms of physically, there's no physically more intimate act that you can um, engage with in someone else. And I think you can even think about the way it's important. I mean, there's so many angles to this, but I think something you can think about to think about why does it 
is it so important? Well, it's clearly the pleasure of it um, is clearly based on things that we choose. I, I mean, in rational people, that is, um, people that are really irrational and give a lot of thought to what they're doing and what they're pursuing and what they're choosing uh, in their lives, they're not going to get sexual pleasure from uh, just any random person that they might have sex with. And that should give you a kind of hint or um, something to think about of like, where does the va like spiritual value of sex come from? Uh, which is that it's a really deep part of it is you're being very selective about the person you're choosing to have sex with. Um, and it's a, a very specific kind of valuation of another person. Um, the other thing I would say is you can even see this, uh, and I'm trying to kind of present an inductive case here of why, why it's so important. You can even see this negatively in the sense that um, a sexual violation is among the worst ways that you can uh, impact another person. Like there's a reason that sexual assault is regarded as one of the worst crimes that someone can commit. Um, is that it's such a deep violation of something that's so crucially important in human life. Um, and that's the ability to form like a deep kind of physical intimacy with someone. Now, the other uh, thing I would say here is, and this, uh, there's a, an essay in The Virtue of Selfishness called The Psychology of Pleasure, which I think says a lot of, um, great things about pleasure in general and sex in particular. There's an issue of um, we need pleasure uh, to live. Like pleasure is an important, and that's an aspect of human nature, again, that goes to our biological function. And what's open to us is how we choose to program our pleasure mechanism, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and you can program it to be consistent with your convictions and consistent with your deepest values um, to the extent that you um, form and uh, pursue deep values. Or you can just, uh, your other option is to just leave it alone and just attempt to find pleasure in um, just whatever you happen to find pleasure in. Um, but the latter course is ultimately going to be uh, self-destructive. It's ultimately not going to actually give you uh, deep values. And uh, I think in the realm of sex, the way that would come up is just think about someone who had no standards in choosing sexual partners. Um, it's going to be very difficult for them to find real deep joy in their sexual activity precisely because they're not being selective and precisely because it's not based on a, a deep evaluation of a person. Um, I just wanna say one more thing about um, the biology component. Like why was I stressing that there's something strange about the way the question is worded, which is that, and I, as I already suggested that there's no division of uh, biological capacity and spiritual valuing in objectivism. Um, there's also, and I, and I think that's something it gets from Aristotle, um, by the way, 
But there's also something wrong with thinking that um, sex is just, and you know, it depends on actually how this question is being answered now that I think, or question asked how, now that I think about it. But if the implication is something like, well, the biological function of sex is reproduction, um, it's important to recognize that that's not even true uh, in general about all animals besides human beings. So um, a couple of examples of that are uh, bonobos and dolphins who um, we have a lot of evidence that suggests that um, in the case of dolphins, they have sex for pleasure. And in the case of bonobos, they not only have sex for pleasure, but they use it as a form of bonding uh, and conflict resolution um, within communities. And they engage in all sorts of um, sexual acts that have absolutely nothing to do with uh, reproduction. And there's even uh, some evidence to suggest uh, that birds engage in certain kinds of um, aesthetic selections or choices that don't have anything to do with, um, don't directly uh, pertain to uh, reproduction as a, um, as a isolated goal in itself. So there are all sorts of aspects in nature where sex um, and the things surrounding sex do a lot more than just reproduction. Um, and I think that's obviously true for human beings as well. So uh, I, that's all I wanted to say about that. Um, ben, you probably have a few things to say. Yeah, and I think uh, Tristan, because we're uh, almost at an hour that this was this is going to be our last question. We won't go on to the fourth one. Uh, but let me let me say a few more things on this one, especially on the issue of what what a spiritual value even is. I mean, one thing to make very clear is that when objectivism says that there's a spiritual value in sex, it doesn't mean something like a mystical or religiously oriented value. We're not talking about the higher realms of the spirit in the sense of something uh, supernatural or beyond this world. What objectivism means by the spirit is, is the is is human consciousness it, your your faculty of being aware of the world so your thoughts and your feelings and what it means to have a value of the spirit or a spiritual value is that just like there's certain physical values that we go after like food and shelter uh, there are spiritual values that we go after in the sense that there are there are facts about our character that are worth developing a really simple example here is something like self-esteem. You need to feel able to live and worthy of living if you're to motivate yourself to go on living. You need to think that you're a good person who can, who can handle things if you're going to continue to fight the fight of life. Uh, people who lose self-esteem get depressed and don't want to go on. So having self-esteem is a very important value of the spirit in the sense that that's a state of your consciousness of having this kind of regard for yourself that's essential for living. Uh, sex and romantic love more generally uh, feature in human life in, in a similar way. And in fact, they're a reflection of the very same issue of self-esteem because one of the things that a person of self-esteem looks for in life is confirmation that he's right 
that it's worth living this life. And one way to find that confirmation is to, is to look for other people who value the same things that we do. Uh, people who value achievement, people who value reason, people who value freedom. And then to see that they see something valuable about you, uh, what objectivists some kind, sometimes call visibility, is a supremely important thing. Uh, this is related to our earlier conversation about knowledge that uh, the, uh, the individualist view of independence that objectivism has doesn't say uh, that every man is an island and just uh, lives in a, a desert somewhere by himself and doesn't acquire any values from other people. That's true whether you're talking about knowledge or you're talking about companionship. That there are tremendous values other people give us, not just what they can teach us, but uh, their friendship and their love. To see that another person, that another consciousness uh, values the same thing as you, your own consciousness, is a really affirming way of being in the world. And when you take that together with the fact that human beings are not simply a consciousness, that we're not just a mind, we're a mind and a body, uh, and that these are integrated, that the, the best way to express the highest values of your spirit is through the body. Uh, and that's, that's what sex represents in the life of a rational being. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of abstractions that we've been dealing with, but I thought you know, it might be interesting to bring this down to earth just a bit insofar as, I mean, sex, sex should be sexy. And uh, you can read some great sex scenes uh, in Ayn Rand's novels. Here's, here's a line from Atlas Shrugged where uh, the character Dagny has uh, just uh, had her first sexual encounter with, with uh, uh, a childhood uh, lover who uh, is a very meaningful person in her life, uh, Francisco. And here's the way Dagny is thinking about things. These are basically her, her, po her post-coital thoughts. Uh, she says, her last thought was of the times when she had wanted to express but found no way to do it. An instant's knowledge of a feeling greater than happiness, the feeling of one's blessing upon the whole of the earth, feeling of being in love with the fact that one exists. And in this kind of world, she thought that the act she had learned was the way one expressed it. If this was a thought of the gravest importance, she did not know it. Nothing could be grave in a universe from which the concept of pain had been wiped out. She was not there to weigh her conclusion. She was asleep, a faint smile on her face in a silent luminous world filled with the light of morning. And part of what I think is coming out in that, pas in, in that passage is is her something that Ayn Rand called the benevolent universe premise, that part of what uh, someone needs another value of character is, is realizing that we live in a world that's open to our achievement and open to our happiness. Uh, and the fact that sex is even possible in the way that it is, is something that expresses that and embodies that. There's a line where Francisco is saying to Dagny, isn't it amazing that our bodies allow us to do such pleasurable things? Uh, contra those who say that our life is just uh, a veil of tears, that, that life is nothing but suffering. So uh, there's a whole lot more that we could say about this, especially uh, about how spiritual dimension of sex relates to uh, our physicality. Uh, Tristan, you touched on a lot of that already, um, but I'll just mention one uh, little set of examples that uh, I got from uh, a book we referenced earlier in the podcast, uh, Dr. Peikoff's Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. If you go to chapter nine of OPAR, 
uh, which is the chapter on happiness, in particular section two uh, of the chapter on happiness, which is called Sex is Metaphysical. It's a very good discussion of what it means for sex to, sex to be a spiritual value in objectivism's view. And Tristan, you talked about the importance of selectivity and how rational people uh, deliberate about just exactly which kinds of values they're going to go after, and they only want to go after certain of them. Dr. Peikoff has some really good concretizations of this in this chapter, uh, where he, he, he kind of goes through the whole gamut of the different kinds of choices that you make in the course of a sexual relationship. He talks about how uh, different people are going to have different value judgments about the kind of dress, the types of caresses, the practices, the positions, all of these things are influenced by your thinking and, and by choices that you've made in life, uh, and especially with regard to your partner. If sex were simply biological in the sense that it only was about reproduction, it was only about something that we uh, you know, got from natural selection, none of this stuff would be important. Uh, we would just go and have sex with whoever we could find in order to, uh, in order to reproduce uh, to the you know, maximum extent possible. But that is not what human beings do. Uh, and it's not what they should do uh, if they are beings of self-esteem who are trying to pursue their own <coughs> happiness and who, whose values in life are chosen, not given to them by God uh, or by biology. And that's one last point then to connect to our earlier discussion about the concept of God, about why uh, religion is incompatible with objectivism. And I think it's uh, not an oversimplification to say that the history of religion is a history of opposition to sex, that it is uh, long, that religion has long demanded asceticism, it's long demanded chastity. Uh, this is why if in Christianity you are a truly holy person, you take a vow of chastity and you vow never to have sex again. Why? Because you are supposed to be uh, married to Christ. You're not supposed to be concerned with things of this world, especially not things related to the body, which is low and grubby and dirty in the view, in, in, in most Christian views. And, you know, it's, it's also uh, not an accident that you've seen this, I think, uh, sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church is in many ways a result of sexual repression that's encouraged by that that viewpoint on chastity. Um, and, yeah, and you, and so you then, can't have the view that there's a spiritual value in sex if you think what matters is, is, is this other world and entities that are demanding that uh, they are the ones who are in control of your life, not you. Yeah, and, and just one more thing on that, Ben, because I think something that comes out of that example um, is that it, it's the religions historically religions attitude the attitude of many religions towards sex is itself a reaffirmation of its importance but in terms of in from their perspective a disvalue um in the sense that it's because it's so important uh to human beings that it has to be regarded as such a a great evil um from the perspective of religion, because it's such an affirmation of independence and a celebration of existence and so on. Um, it, it also reminds me of uh, 1984, 
um, which I think is a great book for a lot of reasons. But one of the really important things that the party does is it um, it tries to make sex something really low that only the proletariat engage in and the members of the party aren't allowed to engage in sex for pleasure. And it's a part of their system of control. And I think that that's exactly right, that that's how it has to be uh, treated if you're trying to control people um, because of like everything we just said of the spiritual importance of it and how it's an affirmation of um, choice and independence and self-esteem and so on. So I think this is a good time to wrap up. Um, so first I wanna take a moment to thank those who've given us contributions on Super Chat. Uh, we appreciate your support. Um, right after this, uh, this show wraps up, uh, the three of us are going to be on Clubhouse uh, and you can come and continue the conversation on any of the topics that we've discussed in this podcast. Uh, you just search for the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse and uh, we will be on there shortly after this, this live stream ends. Um, also, join us next week uh, for a discussion of the new Republican attacks on economic freedom. Ben will be discussing that topic along with Ilan Jerno. This will be at the same time next, next Wednesday. Uh, as always, I'd like to uh, remind you all to uh, subscribe to our, our channel to see our new videos and to click on the bell button to be notified when we, when we start a live stream like this. And uh, we appreciate it if you if you like what we said in this show to to like the show to share it on your social media platforms uh, so that you can uh, bring more attention to uh, to this to this program. Um, also, if you have comments or questions about anything we've said, or if you want to submit your own questions for a future Q and A episode, there will be more like this in the future. Please email us at newideal at einrand.org. Well, thanks, Ben. Thanks, Tristan. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.